I'm so excited to see all of you. Uh, I, was, I was the most excited during uh, the height of quarantine. I remember as cool as uh, watching it on video was, and as cool as the idea that we could do that, I missed most of all uh, just being around you guys. And so I'm really excited uh, that we get to do that this morning, and I welcome anyone that is on video this morning. And we are continuing uh, our series about truth. And the idea of communicating truth to the next generation. So for whatever reason, Stephen and Josh thought it would be cool for the one guy that doesn't have kids uh, to talk about communicating truth to the next generation. But it is something I'm passionate about and really involved in. And so I'm really excited. So oftentimes in the midst of 2020, um, we always have to address how complicated it's been how hard it's been, uh, all the conflict going on. But I want to take us back to the beginning of 2020. So imagine, if you will, that an astronaut landed right outside our parking lot. And he has been in his shuttle for about 10 months. And he gets out, and he is excited. He's like, guys, it's 2020. It's a new decade. Let's go. New era. I'm so excited for this new decade. I got a new mindset. I'm going to get my life set. I got my goal set. Let's go. New decade, new era, 2020 vision. Let's go. And we're all like, dude, you have no idea what just happened the last 10 months. And it's so funny to imagine going back like 10 months ago to the beginning of 2020. We're all excited. It was this new decade, it was this new era, and, and, and it was an exciting time, and we were setting new goals and new visions. And so I want us to go back to that mindset, that despite all that's going on, we are going into a new decade. And this decade is going to be more different than the previous decade, than any time ever before in human history, because technology is changing that rapidly. So the difference between the 2020s and the 2010s is going to be more drastic than any difference between decades ever before. And the people that are going to be most impacted are this next generation. The generation that grew up with any opinion and any information they wanted at their fingertips, with, with high-speed, powerful technology at their fingertips. And it reminds me of a time when there was another group, and they were on the cusp of this new era, going into a new world, and they had this next generation that would experience a world that they never had. They would experience a world with new trials and new temptations that the previous generations had never experienced. And if you want to turn with me, it's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 1. So this Israelite group is on the cusp of this promised land, this new world. And there's this older generation that grew up wandering in the wilderness and had grown up in Egypt. But then their children were this next generation that were going to grow up in this new world. And Moses gave one of the longest sermons ever, and he gave them commands as they would go into this new world as he was not going with them. And, and we're going to go over the command that God gave them through Moses 
to the older generations for how they should communicate truth to the next generation. And in Deuteronomy 11, verse 1, it says this. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. His majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. Moving on to verse 18. And fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So today we are going to be diving into how this truth, this word that God gave to those Israelites, why it is in God's written word to us and how it applies to us today. If you would join me in prayer. God, I just thank you so much, Father, that we get to gather together again in person. And I pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word. That the challenge and the commands that you gave the Israelites all those years ago, we could apply them to our own lives today. And we could see how we could communicate truth to this next generation. I pray that you would be with us through this and love us through this. And be a part of our lives through this. I pray all this the only way I can pray. And that is in Jesus' name and through your spirit. And everybody said, amen. So, a lot of times, if you're like me, and there's something you don't want to do. Uh, and you know you should do it, though. But for whatever reason, you're just, you're not going to do it. And instead of telling someone, just I don't want to do that, because that would be awkward, um, you do a little creative storytelling exercise. And you craft a story vague enough and valid enough that no one will question it, and then you tell them that so that you don't have to tell them no or that you don't want to. And many people would call that creative storytelling exercise an excuse. And if you're like me, you're a, a little too good at it and maybe do it too much. So I think a lot of times when it comes to doing what we should do, we often have excuses. So I want you guys to share with the people around you, get to know them a little bit. Uh, share maybe the funniest, the craziest, or the dumbest excuse you have ever given to get out of something. And what's interesting about this next generation, they don't even have to have excuses now. You can just leave people on red. All right, so I love to hear those excuses after. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about first. So in communicating truth to the next generation, what are the excuses that we often have for not doing it? And I think the first excuse we often have is we underestimate the influence of the world. 
Now, maybe you wouldn't frame it like this, but maybe uh, the excuse would be, well, it doesn't really matter that much to me. You know, maybe I don't have kids, so it's not really my job. You know, my kids are grown up. I don't have to worry about the next generation. It's just not a huge priority to me. I got other stuff going on. It's not that big a deal. Their parents will take care of it. Uh, The church will take care of it. The schools will take care of it. But if we do that, we're underestimating the influence of the world. Or you could say we are underestimating the emergency of the event. The emergency is that this next generation will go into a new world with new temptations and new trials that we have never experienced. And that is the emergency. And I think oftentimes we underestimate this emergency of this event. It'd be like if firefighters, they were driving on their way to a burning building. And as they were driving, they passed the burning building. They're like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Someone else will take care of it. You know, I'm just not really feeling it. The game's on. There's other firefighters around here. They're better people than me. They're better at at fighting fires. They'll take care of it. It's, It's fine. They'll be fine. The burning buildings, they'll be fine, you know. It, the people in there, they're good people. They'll figure it out, you know. They, they got good homes. They'll be good. And I would it'd be silly, but that's how often how we are with this emergency of this event. Is that this next generation is going into a new world with new trials and new temptations. Just like the Israelites were about to do in Deuteronomy. You see, they are going into the promised land, and little did the older generations know... But they were going to experience new trials and new temptations, new trials of warfare. They were going to be all throughout the Old Testament in constant warfare in the promised land. Because there was all these evil nations in the promised land, and they all wanted to destroy the Israelites. And you might say that's a little harsh, evil nations. But they were evil, and they were trying to crush this morally good nation of the Israelites. So all throughout this next generation lives, they were going to be in warfare. Something the older generation had experienced much, much less. And there was going to be constant trial in all of this warfare, constant famine. They were going to experience new uh, temptations. The next generation was going to be around these new religions and these new societies. And, and it's not a coincidence I called them evil nations, because they were evil. Like, you think the United States is bad, or, or any modern country is bad. The, the nations back then were far worse. The nations back then, their religions would support things like child sacrifice, support things like temple prostitution, and, and, and wicked forms of slavery. They would turn a blind eye and even encourage abuse. And they would neglect women, and they would neglect people of other ethnicities. These were the nations surrounding the Israelites in this new land. These would be the nations that would be influencing the next generation. Wicked nations. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound that tempting to me, right? You're like, maybe, maybe a jelly donut sounds tempting, but, but it wouldn't be that tempting to go sacrifice, you know, little Timmy over there. Like, that doesn't sound too tempting. But back then it was, because everyone else was doing it. That was like normal, because every other nation was doing these wicked things. The Israelites were the exception. 
And so these new generation of Israelites were going to grow up where everyone else was doing those things, and it was going to be very tempting and easy to fall into these new temptations. And just like the Israelites, this next generation today is going to have new trials and new temptations. New trials of that this next generation will have record rates of depression. This next generation will have record rates of anxiety. More kids in this next generation, more than ever, will grow up without a father figure or positive male role model, statistically, especially in minority communities. This next generation will go through the trial of more and more having unstable family units, having two biological parents still in a committed relationship. That will make you in the minority in this next generation. That will be uncommon. This next generation will experience isolation at higher rates than ever. They will experience new forms of hatred online. People will have more accessibility to their lives than ever before. Experience record rates of eating disorders and suicidal thoughts and actions. Even though this generation in the United States will be the wealthiest ever, they will be the most anxious, depressed, fatherless, and confused. And they will face new temptations. New temptations and more acceptability to explicit material online than ever before. For my generation, that was often found in 5th, 6th, 7th grade. For this next generation, it will be even younger at ages 7 and 8. Before kids even know what parts of their body that those things are meant for. New temptations of intimacy outside of a committed covenantal relationship of marriage. That kind of intimacy will be found in many other relationships. And that won't be strange. It'll be common. It'll be encouraged. It'll be normal. New temptations of recreational drug abuse. They'll have more access than ever. It'll be more encouraged and more commonplace than ever. They will have the temptations to compare themselves online. And they will have more options to compare to and more information on people to compare to than ever before. And the idea that there is an inherent right and wrong and that there is inherent truth and an inherent hope People that believe that will also be in the minority. And the idea that everyone should just do whatever they want, whenever they feel like it, will be more and more commonplace. And these new temptations, though maybe seemingly drastic, will be very easy to fall into. Those may seem like really drastic. You might say, Andrew, whoa, that was, that was, that was deep. That was, that was kind of dark. Those are kind of extreme. But I think oftentimes those things are very easy to slip into. So, quick change of pace. Lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, if you're like me, you often like to jam in the car, right? Your classic turns on, your bop, your banger, if you will. And when that song turns on, it's, it's showtime, right? If you're like me, you love awkwardly singing it in the car. 
um, at a very horrible pitch. So I want you to share with the people around you your favorite song to jam to. Share with the people around you. All right, so if you're like me and that song comes on, you're like, let's go. If you're in the car, you, you turn it up a little bit, right? Like the music was here, and all of a sudden the song comes on, you turn the volume up a little more, and you're going. You're like, let's go. This is my jam. This is unskippable. And then you turn it up a little more, right? And you're like, let's go. And you turn it up a little more. You get a little more used to it, right? And you're like, let's go. You turn it up a little more. Turn up a little more. And soon you're like blasting the radio at like maximum. You're like, hey, hey. And it, but if someone were to hop into that car, they would be like, whoa, this music is so loud. What? Oh, my goodness. How, how are you listening to it that loud? And you're like, oh, man, I didn't even realize how loud it got, right? You just slowly got used to it and turned it up a little more, right? And you didn't even realize it until someone got in the car and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so loud. How are you listening to it that loud? And that's often how it is when we fall into temptation. And we fall into sin. It, it's never, usually not this drastic step of, of like not sinning and then just like all the way down the rabbit hole. It's usually this subtle slide of slowly turning up the volume. Because at first we like turn it on and you're like, this, is, this isn't even technically on. Volume's not even technically on. And then we like turn it up a little more and we're like, okay, well according to the manual, this isn't even technically loud, so no one could even tell me that this, you know, this is loud right now. And we turn it up a little more and we get more and more used to it. And soon, what at the beginning would seem really, really loud to us is suddenly normal. And that's often how it is with sin. The things we thought, oh, I'd never do that, suddenly we find ourselves on this slide and falling into those things. And that's because of the influence of the world, and that's, that's what this next generation is going to face. That maybe some of the things I listed are drastic, but we need to understand the world can influence a slide into those things. We also need to understand that no matter how great a family a kid may be a part of, how great a church, how great a school system, at some point, we all leave the mountaintop. We all leave the safe place, the safe places of our lives. And when you leave the safe places of your life, it suddenly becomes a lot harder to follow and to remember God's commands. It's like, if any of you guys ever remember going to a summer camp, right, and everyone's like, oh, I'm fire for Jesus, or like a retreat or something, right? Um, and then you leave camp, right? And then life, life hits, normal, normal, everyday life hits. And suddenly, it's different. And in a similar way, this next generation, at some point, they, they won't be around their family as much. Maybe, maybe they won't be able to be a part of a healthy, loving church for a bit. And they will leave those safe places, and it will become harder to follow and remember God's commands. 
because it will be more difficult and there will be more distractions. It's like in a book I read called The Silver Chair, and it was written by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, and it's in the series called The Chronicles of Narnia, and the books are better than the movies, I'm just saying, there's more of them. So this is one of the ones that they never made uh, a modern movie about. But in this book, um, C.S. Lewis writes about this idea of if, what if God had to come as Jesus to a world of talking animals? What would that look like? What, what, what would their interactions with God be? What would their interactions with Jesus be? How would Jesus, you know, sacrifice for them? And how would their theology work? How would they relate to God? And so he writes this story of this world called Narnia, of talking animals. So, so God doesn't come as a human to this world. He comes as a talking lion named Aslan. And, and in the beginning of the silver chair, Aslan, this Jesus figure in these books, is sending two kids into Narnia to save the next generation. And, and, and when he brings them into this world, he starts them on uh, a mountaintop in a place called Aslan's Country, which is, which is the, the heaven idea in, in the books. And so they're on this beautiful green mountaintop. And, 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 and to start the book, he sends them on a quest, and he gives them signs, rules, commands to follow. And there's only four of them, and they're very simple as many of God's commands to us are, right? And, and, and so he says, here are the four signs, here are the four commands, and then I'm going to send you out into the real world, and, and you're going to go on this quest. And remember the signs, follow the signs, follow the signs, remember the signs. And they're like, yeah, 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 Aslan, we got it. Four signs, we'll see you. Four signs, that's easy. And he's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. He goes, all right, I want you to repeat the four signs to me. And they do, and they're slightly off. And he goes, okay, I want you to repeat the signs to me again. And they say, okay, here are the signs, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, okay, repeat the signs to me again. And they repeat again. And he goes, repeat the signs to me again. And they repeat again. And they're just like, why are you, it's four simple signs. They're like, it was so hard. And he keeps having them repeat. And then he tells them, I want you, when you go down there, to repeat these. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you walk along the road. Sounds very fam familiar to Deuteronomy. And wherever you go, repeat the signs, remember the signs, and follow the signs. And I, yeah, okay, we get it. All right, four signs, like we're ready to go on the quest. And he tells them something very profound. It's a paraphrase. But he tells them, when you go down into the real world, it is going to be harder to remember the signs. There are going to be distractions. And there are going to be difficult times. And there are going to be tough times where you say, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to think about the signs anymore. I don't care about the signs. And there are going to be distractions that might, that might distract you from remembering and following the signs. And all throughout this book, you see that. The kids, they face tough times, and they say, forget the signs. And then they face distracting times, and, and they slowly forget about the signs. And it's the same with us. That when we leave church, when we leave the home, we go into a world that's distracting. A world that is difficult. And it's harder to remember God's truth in difficult times and in distracting times than it is in the safe places of life. And so it is for 
this next generation. That's why we oftentimes repeat the same truth to ourselves so many times in Christianity. Very simple truth. Because the real world oftentimes can distract us from those, and in difficult times it can be hard to remember. So we cannot underestimate the influence of the world. We cannot underestimate how distracting it is. We cannot underestimate how difficult it is for this next generation. Second excuse we might often give is we don't really see ourselves as that qualified, right? You might say, Andrew, I don't have a Bible degree. I'm new to church. I haven't been around this long. I'm not good at talking about Jesus. I'm not good at talking about faith. You know, like, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not as smart in talking about those types of things. I'm introverted, I'm kind of shy, I talk too much, I'm too extroverted, I don't talk enough, I I mean, it's just not really me, it's not really my thing, and we don't see ourselves as qualified. Well, my question to you is, if in the arena or the role of being a parent, being a spouse, being an employee, being a co-worker, being a sibling or being in a romantic relationship. If you feel unqualified in any of those areas, even a little bit, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I feel a little unqualified. Man, y'all are real qualified. Okay. Well, and often in this area, maybe, you know, we don't feel as qualified. But what's cool is if you go to Deuteronomy 11, verse 1, we see the only qualification that we need to communicate truth to the next generation. And it's this, the only qualification, love the Lord your God. You say, Andrew, I'm not that good at talking about my faith. Well, do you love the Lord your God? I'm not good at talking about Jesus. Do you love the Lord your God? I'm not the best listener. Do you love the Lord your God? It's not really my thing. Well, do you love the Lord your God? If you do, then you're qualified. That's the only prerequisite that you need is to love the Lord, your God. That's what qualified these adults in Israel. They were not the smartest in the room. They were not the most moral in the room. They weren't the best people. But in general, they loved the Lord, their God. I don't think it's a coincidence that all throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis frames um, the people that Aslan used as useless kids. And I call them useless because a lot of times they really messed up in the Chronicles of Narnia. (laughs) A lot of times they forgot what to do, uh, they had doubts, and they oftentimes messed up because they're kids. And, And that's often how it is for God throughout Scripture. He used the unqualified. He used, if you're going to a tool shed of people, the most rusty, broken down tools to do his will, to do some of the greatest miracles God has ever accomplished. He used fishermen. He used really dumb people. He used political radicals, like zealots, like people that would kill for their politics. Yeah, so the equivalent of like the really radical left and right, yeah, he used those people back then. He used racists, people that would treat people differently based on their ethnicity. He used those people in Scripture. He used prostitutes. He used people that were unfaithful to their wives. He used drunkards. He used self-centered people, egotistical people. He used all of those people. 
accused people that murdered other people he was using. The greatest missionary ever killed Christians. Actually. You want to talk about a, a broken tool? That was like a chainsaw that like barely worked. So if I look at that, I'm like, shoot, I mean, I have, might have a, some screws loose, but I'm not that bad. If God can use some of those, like, dimwits, he can use me. And the only reason he was able to use them is because they loved the Lord their God. They didn't all the time. They didn't always follow him. But he used them when they loved the Lord their God. And you might say, hold on, Andrew. There's more to that verse. I'm following along. It says, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. I got you. It always goes back to rule following. You got to follow the rules, too. It's not just about loving God. Then maybe, maybe you feel unqualified because you're not necessarily following God yourself right now. So you, you don't feel as if you could communicate to someone else. Well, what's interesting is, is I think the second part of that verse, keeping his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands, is ultimately tied to the first part of loving the Lord your God. You see this word love in the original language. It is not the idea of an emotion or a feeling or an experience as we often think of it in today's world. We often associate that as the meaning of love. But love in the original language, it communicates this idea in this verbiage as a continuous and active and complete verb. It is something that is actively happening, continuously happening, complete, all-encompassing. It is an action. It is something that is occurring, not something that is being experienced or felt or has been felt or was experienced a couple years back. It is something that is happening today. That loving the Lord your God is an active occurrence, an active choice in your life. And if you are loving God in that way, you will find yourself following his commands and in his will. The will of God and loving God is tied together. It's like the idea of, in the Bible, it, it, it uses an image that we are married to Christ. And imagine, if you will, uh, well, some of you don't have to imagine, but imagine, all right, a hypothetical marriage, right? And, and, and it would be very hard to be unfaithful to your marriage partner if you were always talking to them and always spending time with them. And maybe you only spent time with them and talked to them a couple times a day. But even when you weren't, even if you were working or going to the gym or hanging out with your kids, you were thinking about how your relationship with that spouse was going was to change and impact how you worked, how you spent time with your kids, how you worked out. That all throughout your day, you're spending time with that partner, you're talking with that partner, or even when you were doing other things, your relationship with that partner was changing how you were doing everything else in your life. It would be very difficult to be unfaithful to that partner if that was what was happening. Maybe you would have a few slip-ups here and there, but not something consistent. And that is what God is calling us to, to be a faithful 
loving spouse. And it's very hard to not be following his commands and be unfaithful to him if we are actively, daily, and continuously choosing him. Maybe not always feeling him, maybe not always experiencing him, but choosing to follow and love him every day. That when we love God, we follow him. And that those two are tied together. The will of God and a love for God. My friend recently was talking to me, and we were at a bonfire with friends. And he's like, Andrew, I want to do something big for God. I want to know what God's destiny is for me. I want to know what God's will is for me. He helped me out with that. I was like, okay, cool. And, and I was like, well, you know, do you, do you pray to him much? No, not really. Do you, ever, do you ever spend time in his word, even a little bit? And he's like, no, no, not really. And I was like, do you, do you ever think about it? No, not really. Does your relationship with him really change how you talk and act and, and live life? Ah, uh, not much. All right, well, let's start there. <laughs> And then he's like, he's like, well, I want to do something, though. You know, I want to do something. And I said, okay. You see, the, you see our friends around the campfire? I said, love them as Christ loves you and has called you to love them. There's your mission. There's your destiny. There's God's will for your life. Love God, love others. It's as simple as that. And wherever you find yourself in life, you are in God's will if you're doing that. And so I texted him the next day, and I was like, all right. One minute uh, reading God's word, one minute talking to God, and one minute listening. And that's it. And go love, go love your friends as Christ loved you. There's, there's God's will for your life. The only qualification we need is loving God. And when we love God, we will follow him. So now that we've moved past some of the excuses, let's look at how we can communicate truth to the next generation more effectively. And the first way that we can communicate to this next generation more effectively is to have a reason or a foundation behind our truth, an apologetic, if you will. We need to have a reason or a foundation behind our truth. For those of you guys that have kids, how many of them are like asking why a lot? Raise your hand. Right? Why, 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 why? Well, we got to do this. Why? We got to whatever. Why? Uh, this is this way. Why? Right? Um, I wasn't that way. I was pretty quiet as a kid. So I was always told to buckle my seatbelt. I was never told why. I had no reason to, except that I knew it was the right thing to do. But there was one day I didn't really feel like buckling my seatbelt, and we were on the interstate. So I unbuckled my seatbelt. And then I proceeded to unlock the door. And then I proceeded to open the door. And I proceeded to almost fall out, and I would have met Jesus a couple years early. Thankfully, I didn't. And afterwards, my parents, in a very loving yet harsh way, communicated to me the reason behind the truth that you should buckle your seatbelt. Right? It would have helped to have a reason and a foundation behind that truth, whether it was someone who had experienced, like me, unbuckling their seatbelt and almost dying, or someone had pointed out to me statistics and knowledge about how much safer it was, because it helps to have a reason or a foundation for the truth 
when life becomes more difficult and distracting. At some point, it might have been, it might have been distracting and tempting to not put on my seatbelt. Right? I could have been riding with friends. Hey, everyone else isn't buckling. Let's go. You know, I could have been really mad. I had a difficult day one day, and I'd be like, man, screw this. I'm not buckling my seatbelt. I've had a rough day. But if I had a reason or a foundation behind that truth, other than I just know I'm not supposed to do it, then I maybe would stay strong when those difficult and distracting times come. And though that's kind of a silly hypothetical, a real one for me that I wish someone had done was growing up, I grew up in church, I grew up with amazing parents, very loving parents, not perfect, but great. I love them very much. Some of you guys uh, have met them once or twice. And I grew up at good churches, good people. I had great grandparents. I had good siblings. I had a very safe uh, life growing up. And I had always been told um, that doing certain things with girls was reserved for when I would marry one, right? That, that was the truth. That was communicated to me. I knew that. Um, I knew that very well. But no one ever gave me a reason. I just knew what I should and shouldn't do. And oftentimes I wish someone had. Even if it was just experience. And that's what the older generation of the Israelites had. They had experiences with God that they were called to communicate to the next generation. It says it right in verse 2. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. The next generation didn't have the experience that the older generation did. They hadn't seen God in the way the older generation had. They hadn't made the mistakes. They hadn't gone through what the older generation had gone through. And the older generation was called to remember that and keep that in mind when they communicated truth to the next generation. And I wish someone had done that for me. That someone had sat me down and said, Andrew, look, I've been there. I totally understand why you'd want to do that. And I did myself. Maybe I didn't. And I'm telling you, if you make that decision, it is not going to lead to the healthiest, fullest experience of life that God has called you to. And I'm not just saying that, but I actually experienced, I wish someone had told me that, had shared their experience with me. I wish someone had given me a reason, an apologetic, a foundation behind that truth. Because at some point, life got very difficult and very distracting for me. And I started dating people. And they were cute. I was like, man, y'all didn't tell me they were going to be this cute. I thought that rule was pretty easy, and then I started dating one, you know. You can tell me they're going to be this hot, you know. I'm a teenager, so, you know, emotions are on, like, overload. And one thing led to another. And, and in a lot of relationships, uh, I, I went too far. And, and, and I, was, I was intimate in, in ways that... Um, God would call me to save that for the person I would be married to. 
And God, of course, of course, has given me grace for that. But I always think about, I wish, I wish someone had given me a reason and a foundation behind that. Because at some point, it was very difficult following that truth. And maybe even if someone shared their experience with me. And it goes beyond just that. We need to share experiences and reasons for the guidelines for how this next generation should date, should operate business, should be partners, should be siblings. We need to give reasons behind the guidelines for how this next generation should have friendships, how this next generation should talk, how they should act, how they should give, how they should handle money, the language they should use, the love they should share. We need to have reasons behind all of those guidelines we give that God has given us beyond just do and don't. And you may say, well, Andrew, in some of these things, I may not have a reason. I may not have an experience. Well, if we have no other reason, we have Jesus. That's the reason. In the book, The Silver Chair, at the end of the book, uh, they are facing, the children and their guide are facing this great temptation to forsake believing in everything they have ever believed in. And they're in this underground world, and they're being tempted to, 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 to say that everything above ground, they made up, and it wasn't real. And the only thing that was real was the underground world. And they faced this great temptation. And it would be so easy if they just believed that. Everyone else was. And, and they're told to forsake believing that there was ever a sun and moon and animals and anything above ground. And they begin to fall into that temptation. And, 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 and their guide, who is named Puddlegum the Marshwiggle. Yes, that, is, that was his name. Stands up. It's in like the climax of the book. And he makes this speech. And he says, I don't even care if I made up all of it. I don't care if there isn't a sun. I don't care if there isn't a moon or if there's animals. Or I'm dreaming up all of this and it's a play world in my imagination. But I know that there's Aslan. And if there's nothing else, I know there's Aslan. And Aslan, in his world, licks your world hollow any day of the week. And I'm standing with Aslan. And if we don't have any other reason to follow God's truth, we have Jesus. That Jesus loves us and made us. And he made this world, and he knows what's best for us. If we have no other reason to follow his truth, we have that, that Jesus loves us and knows what's best for us. And if we have no other reason to stick up for something, we have Jesus. The final way we can communicate more effectively is to have this next generation experience it. How can they experience God's truth? Well, Deuteronomy tells us. By this older generation fixing God's words in their hearts and minds, tying them as symbols on their hands, binding them on their foreheads, teaching them, talking about them when they sit at home, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up, and writing them on door frames and on gates. 
it's communicating this idea that not literally we would like tattoo stuff on our hands. But some of the Jews actually believed that they would tie boxes of scripture on their hands like jewelry or something. It's not communicating that. It's communicating that this older generation is called to live their lives, everything they do, in such a way that the younger generation would experience God's truths through them when they were walking and when they were sleeping and when they would get up and when they would eat. Because being around something changes you. If you've ever met someone from New Jersey, you know that. You talk to someone from New Jersey and they talk and act like a New Jerseyan. Why? Because they're around people from New Jersey. And if they leave New Jersey, suddenly that accent fades away because they're around people that don't talk like New Jerseyans. And I see that oftentimes I, I'm involved in young life leadership in the area. Sometimes I can tell someone is involved in, in young life just by the way they talk, just by the way they talk about faith and the words they choose. And I'll be like, hey, are you involved in young life? Yeah, I was. Just by the way they talk about Jesus, I can tell that they've been around people in young life. Because being around something changes you. And knowledge is often not enough. But often experience is. And you can see this in people that are afraid of flying. Though it is completely irrational to be afraid of flying, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, I can't fly. Like it's a giant metal tube in the air. And you're like, oh my gosh, like read some statistics. Airplane crashes never happen. Driving in a car is more dangerous. And you could throw all the facts and figures you want at them. They won't change their mind. Knowledge often isn't enough. Experience is. They often maybe wouldn't believe it until they actually flew in a plane. And so we need the next generation to not just know it, but to experience it through us. And as the band comes back up, I, I would like to share a story of someone who communicated truth to the next generation that didn't underestimate the emergency of the event, that didn't underestimate the influence of the world, that though he was 18 years old, didn't see himself as unqualified, that had reasons behind his truth, though they weren't the smartest, well-thought-out reasons, and that helped someone younger than him experience God's truth. There was this senior in high school, and, and he was the prom king. Very, very popular guy, right? Everyone loved him. He was, he was the state champion diver. And, and he loved Jesus a lot. And so his senior year, he noticed a table of very awkward and uncomfortable-looking freshman guys. And he decided to sit with them at lunch. And he decided to love them as Jesus had loved him. And, and, and then he would invite his popular friends, the cheerleading captain and the lacrosse captain, and they would all sit with these awkward, not-so-likable freshman guys. And it didn't make any sense in, in, in the, the social structure of high school that this had happened. And, and he would ask these freshman guys to hang out with him outside of school, just as friends, freshmen and seniors. It, it never happened. They didn't know each other. They weren't siblings. They weren't related. And, and it baffled one of those awkward freshman guys why, why he was doing this. And that awkward freshman guy was offered at lunch once a week 
to read through a book of the Bible and talk about life. And so they began with the book of James. And in a whole lunch, they would go through three verses, and he had never, never studied God's word like that. And though this older senior didn't know much and was 18 years old and didn't know very much about the Bible, he impacted and communicated truth to the next generation and to that awkward freshman guy. And as time went on, the senior graduated, and he went on to the University of Louisville um, to join their diving team. And he never saw the awkward freshman guy again for years and years and years. And about seven years later, he got a message from that awkward freshman guy. And he said, you have no idea the impact you had on my life. And I never told you. But those times at lunch had changed my life. And when I was a senior, I wanted to be like you. And, and I, I, I tried to be friends with this freshman group of guys. And I would ask them at lunch to sit and read through a book of the Bible and talk about life. And it changed me so much, I actually might be going into ministry. And that senior's name was Bailey Harrison. And that awkward freshman guy's name was Andrew Smith. And Bailey Harrison forever changed my life because he decided to communicate truth to the next generation even if the next generation was only four years younger than I was. And, and I pray we would do the same. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much, Father, that love is the only qualification we need to communicate truth, that you have already qualified, and that you have called us to an urgent emergency, but that you are going to work through us I pray you would give us reason behind our truth. And I pray that you would help us live our lives in such a way that the next generation would experience you. God, just help us to love you daily, continuously, and completely. And thank you that you love us every day, no matter what.